Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm Rob Berman, Executive Director of Centrum. On today's podcast, we're joined by Puget Sound Mycological Society past president Marion Maxwell as she explains the basics of mushroom collecting, including seasons for mushroom hunting, permits required, types of mushrooms to look for, cooking, dangers, and where to hunt. She's a past president of the Puget Sound Mycological Society and has served as one of their lead identifiers, educators, and scientific display chairpersons for more than 20 years. She was interviewed online on October 26, 2020 by Ted Alvarez, CrossCut's editor for Science and the Environment. Join us as we learn how to explore the outdoors by foraging for a vast Northwest resource, mushrooms. Without further ado, Marianne Maxwell. Thank you, Ted. I would like to thank you all for joining me tonight. And I'm really sorry that I didn't get to meet you in person. Um, it's these, this is the time, sign of the times. And I am honored to be here speaking about mushrooms tonight. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start talking about mushrooms. This is um, out somewhere near Mount Rainier in a secret location. <laughs> this is uh, Heresium abietus. This was one of our great finds. This is a huge mushroom. And um, I might say a little bit about myself. I have been a past president of the Puget Sound Mycological Society. I am the current outreach person, and I've been a member since 1978, but I've worked on the annual show since 1976. That's a long time. I enjoy mushroom hunting. It's a great passion of mine, and I belong to a group called the Puget Sound Mycological Society, which is a nonprofit 5013C organization, and our main goal is to teach people how to forage mushrooms safely. So the actual mission statement is fostering understanding and appreciation of mycology as a hobby and a science and assisting related institutions in this purpose. Now we do participate in scientific studies in spring and fall in non-COVID years. We have a free public ID clinic Monday nights, um, usually starts in the spring. It starts at the end of April and goes through till June. And in the fall, it starts at the end of September and goes through till October, sometimes November. And that's free to the public. You can bring our mushrooms to us between 4 and 7 p.m. But this year, you have to send your request for ID to ID at psms.org. So basically, what is a mushroom? A lot of people think that the mushroom is the body of the, that's the body of the fungus. It is not. The mushroom is only the fruiting body of the fungus. The actual true body of the fungus are the tiny white filaments that are either in the tree or in the ground or whatever the fungus is living in. So in this picture, you can see where the little white filaments are down in that dirt. And that is actually the body of the mushroom. Singularly, those are called hyphae and plurally, it's called a mycelium. Not all fungi produce mushrooms. Yeasts do not. Rusts and smudge, which, which are plant diseases, do not. And also there's a group of fungi called endophytic fungi that live their entire life cycle within a plant or a tree. 
and those do not produce mushrooms either. But we're going to focus strictly on the ones that do tonight. So basically, how do we identify mushrooms? Well, uh, mushrooms are pretty difficult to identify just by the threads that you see, the body of the mushroom. If there's no fruiting body, it's difficult to tell what that mushroom is. We can identify it by DNA sequencing, but most people who are out foraging don't have that at their disposal. I know I don't. <laughs> so what we rely on is the, the actual appearance of the fruiting body. So we look at the structures, as you can see on the right by my drawing, what structures are there or are not there, and then also some other things. Now the cap is referred to as a cap in layman's terms, the technical term is pileus. Some mushrooms will have a cap, some won't. And then the stipe, which a lot of people call a stem, it's not really a stem like a plant stem, but it, we call it a stipe. And some mushrooms will have that, some won't. And then you have two other different structures that are very important. There's a veil that covers, the, the veil on the bottom down here covers the entire mushroom. And it's called a universal veil. And when the mushroom elongates, it's left as a cup at the bottom. That's really important to remember that as well as the veil up here halfway up the stem is called a partial veil. And that covers the fruiting area, the gills or whatever the fruiting areas that bear the spores underneath the cap. And as the cap widens, that breaks away and it's left like a skirt or a collar. Some mushrooms will have that, some won't. It's considered that the higher evolutionary, the ones that are higher on the evolutionary scale have both that veil, the partial veil and the universal veil because those are structures that were developed in evolution and they're for greater protection of the mushroom itself. The partial veil protects the mushroom spores as it's coming up through the ground from bacteria or other fungi or becoming too wet and molding um, and the universal veil actually protects the entire mushroom. So it's like a double wall of protection. If you see both the partial veil and the cup down on the bottom left on the mushroom, very important to remember that because the deadliest mushrooms, many of them have both those features. And so that's really important to remember that. Now the body of the mushroom are these tiny little filaments down on the bottom down here, the mycelium. The spores will be produced if the mushroom has a cap under the cap, either on gills that are like fish gills, we call them lamella, or there might be teeth under the cap, or it could be what looks like a sponge, but they're actually long tubes that are oppressed, and the spores are produced on the inside of those tubes. It can also be a smooth surface, and the spores would be produced then on the smooth surface. Now for mushrooms that don't have a cap, the spores will be produced on the outside of the stem. And if it's a mushroom that is completely enclosed, like some of the puffballs are, the spores are produced inside of that. Same with truffles. So different types of mushrooms will differ in having some of these features, all of them, and that's how we use to identify them. So we also look at the attachment. If it's a gilled mushroom, how are the gills attached? Are they attached only to the cap at the top, underneath the cap, or they are, are they partially attached to the stem or the stipe? Another important thing is spore deposit color. With the gilled mushrooms and the bolletes, you get, which are the tube fungi, 
you can set this cap on a piece of paper and leave it overnight and it will develop what's called a spore print. That spore print is different colors depending on what group of fungi you have. So that can be useful in identification. We also look at smell. A lot of people don't realize that smell is really an important identification characteristic. And there are mushrooms that smell like cinnamony nutmeg, like the matsutake, or like almonds, like the prince. You can get mushrooms that smell like creosote. I actually have it written down because sometimes I forget. Um, there's so many different smells. Uh, maraschino cherries, that's actually not a good one to eat, surprisingly. Licorice, grape, soda pop. That's like one of my favorites. Not to eat, but just to smell. <laughs> Garlic, shrimp, cucumbers, burnt sugar, cedar, pears, orange juice, curry. Now, there's also the smells that are not so nice. And those are green corn, fresh fish, creosote, radish, bleach, skunk cabbage, soap, or iodine. Those are just some of them. There's other smells as well. There's even one that smells like potatoes. We also look at bruising. So when you're handling the mushroom, sometimes you'll notice it changes colors. And that color can, it can change like bruise red, bruise brown. And for some of the mushrooms, it'll bruise an intense blue. That's really important for identification. Texture or feel of the cap. Does it feel like suede? Is it sticky? Are there bumps on it? Um, is it very dry and cracked? Coloration of the mushroom structures. There are colors of every color of the rainbow for mushrooms. You have clear, white, yellow, orange, red. There's even pink, um, blue, green, violet, brown, black. It's they're the full gamut. It's really quite beautiful for there are a lot of really beautiful colors. And then also does the mushroom have milk or latex exudate? If in some of the gilled mushrooms, if you cut those gills transversely, they will exude what we call a milk or a latex. And that those are called the milky caps. Microscopic features, you probably won't get into that too much if you're beginning, but the spores actually look different under a microscope. They have different chemical reactions with some of the stains we use, and they also look different under the microscope. Some of them will have pores, some of them are perfectly round, and you'll see globs of oil in them. Other ones are elongated, some have ridges or bumps. And then, of course, there's different colors of spores. Some of them are clear, some of them are darker. And then there's other structures we look at that are actually on the gills themselves that you would need a microscope to look at. And they're generally considered, many of them are considered spacers, that they actually widen the area so that when the spores are ready to mature and become windborne, it actually enables them to have the space to do so. So partial veils. These are some of the partial veils. I just wanted to show you some examples. On the left here, you'll see it's surprising. A lot of people don't realize that that cobwebby material is actually considered a partial veil. It's not left like a skirt. It's actually a cobweb. And a lot of people might think that that's a spider that got under there. But these are called the webcats. And those are that's an important characteristic because there's some really nasty poisons in the webcaps. So you have to, generally we don't eat the webcaps. There's a couple exceptions, but as a beginner, if you see that, you should probably just admire them for their beauty. On the right, 
this little fringe down at the bottom of the cap in the strough area. I don't, didn't label these because I, I want you to concentrate just on the structures themselves for the, these photos. And this is actually a partial veil. You would think when you looked at it, okay, there's not a skirt on that step, stem or stipe. And so it doesn't have a partial veil, but that's not true. Instead on this mushroom, it's left like a fringe on the cap. And it did cover those gills. And then when it opened, for some reason, this particular mushroom, it sticks to the edge of the cap. Here's some other partial veils. These are ammonita. This is an ammonita here. And it's left like a skirt. Kind of looks like a collar, but it's more like a skirt. And then this is your prints where you can see it's really fluffy veil and it's slowly pulling away as that mushroom widens. And on the bottom here is the Matsutake. Now these are still closed and you can see how this veil is still attached at the edge of the edges of the cap. That has not broken away yet, but as the mushroom widens and the cap widens out, these will break away and be left as remnants on the stipe themselves. So your cup or your vulva, that's the universal veil that covered the entire mushroom. And in some mushrooms, it's left like a ring on the bottom of the stipe. And in other ones, it's left like a sack. So the one on the right here is very, very important to remember how this looks. It has the partial veil, it has white spores, it has the vulva down below, the universal veil, and this is the death cap and it's responsible for about 90% of the deaths around the world. And it, you can't tell that it's a bad mushroom by the taste. Apparently it's quite good tasting and you don't generally get the results of that poison for about two to three days. It, well, it takes two to three days to kill people generally. There is no antidote. They can give you supportive treatment. So you, mushroom hunting is really, you really need to learn ID. Um, mushroom hunting is not a hobby that you should take up in a cavalier sort of way. That you can stick to certain mushrooms that are easier to identify to begin with. And then as you get better with your ID skills, you can branch out to other things. But for the guild mushrooms, this is the one to really remember what it looks like. And it can vary in color on the cap. It can be white, it can be kind of a yellow or green, and it can also be a brown. So it's, but the main thing here is that partial veil with the white gills and then also the vulva. The one on the left is not deadly, but people, if they do eat it, they will probably be unconscious for a while, but they will recover. Spore prints. Remember I talked about leaving, putting the cap on the piece of paper. And if you leave it overnight, it will leave, the spores will drop on the paper and it will leave a print. This is a rusty brown spore print. And this is in the group Inosibi. And you can tell this, I can tell that because the cap has these little striations and it cracks at the edges and it has a rusty brown spore print. And this one would not be a good one. <laughs> This is one of the ones that sometimes dogs eat because some of them smell like fish and they're quite poisonous. Different spore print colors would be white. And that's why they have the, the variation in the color of paper here. If this was a white spore print, you wouldn't see it on the left, but it would show up on the right. But spore prints can be white, off-white, pink, brown, black, rusty brown, different shades of brown. And there is one that is even a slight green. So if you're gonna look for mushrooms, you will have to know where to find them. So in order to know where to find them, you'll have to know what role they occupy in the ecosystem. Now mushrooms and fungi, I should say the 
fungi that produce mushrooms cannot make their own sugars. So it's how they derive these sugars as to what their relationship will be with nature. So for the symbiotic mushrooms, they have a mutually beneficial relationship that they have formed with an organism, usually a tree or a plant, and they will, that can also be in the form of algae for a, a lichen. So, but they form a mutually beneficial relationship, which means they both derive benefit. The fungus gets the sugars from the tree that it cannot make, and in return, the tree gets greater mineral and water absorption. Now, remember I showed you that the body of the mushroom is that tiny filament. Well, it's only one cell thick. And so fungi can get into places where typical tree roots, which are several cells thick, cannot get. So in times of drought, for example, they can get down into little cracks and crannies and pick up water and minerals and things like that that the tree can't get to. So they help the trees or the plants with which they're associated. They're difficult to cultivate. The reason for this is you not only have to cultivate the fungus, but you have to cultivate the relationship with the tree. And in many cases, the mushroom does not start fruiting until the tree is about 15 to 20 years old, like for chanterelles, that's the really productive time for uh, chanterelles is, you know, 15 to 20, maybe 30 years. And so it takes a long time to cultivate that. And they have not figured out how to cultivate chanterelles or matsutake or Boletus sedulus porcini. They have figured out some truffle cultivation farms, but so far not on the others. Saprobic means that the mushroom that produces, the fungus that produces the mushroom are, is gaining its carbon source or its sugars from dead or dying organic matter. Now these are your forced recyclers. These are the ones that come in when something has died and they clean it up, they take out the nutrients and then move on to the next ones that have died. These are the easiest to cultivate. These are like your store-bought mushrooms, the little white button mushroom, the cremini, the portobello. Those are all easier to cultivate. And the mushroom does not need to form a symbiotic relationship because that organism is either dead or dying. It's on its way out. The last relationship is parasitic. The parasitic fungus does not get its sugar with a mutually beneficial relationship. It takes it at the expense of the host organism. And this can either be a long-term or a short-term uh, parasitic relationship. It can be a virulent parasite that kills its host organism within a short amount of time, or it could be a smarter parasite that takes enough and keeps that host going so that it sticks around for a while. So these either you kill or they can weaken the host. And these are usually not very beneficial to cultivate. And of course, the tree farms don't like to see these come in at all. Um, but many of these have been found to have medicinal properties. So when do mushrooms fruit in the Pacific Northwest? Well, we are lucky here. Some other areas just have one fruiting season. We have two predominant seasons. We have spring and fall. In spring, there are fewer mushrooms and there's only a couple edibles that we look for. In fall, there's more diversity, and it really is the best season. Um, most of the really choice edibles, with the exception of like morels that a lot of people like, but most of my favorites are in the fall. We do have some fruiting in summer, 
not much. And we also have some fruiting in winter if it's mild. Now, if you've had a couple hard frosts, you are not gonna have mushrooms come up after that. And in icy, you know, icy weather with snow, there's just nothing's gonna be fruiting. Now, fruitings will vary with the amount of rain you've had, weather conditions, moisture, content of the soil. So maybe you haven't had rain, but maybe there's a spring there and there's water where other areas don't have that water. You may get mushrooms there. So if you're looking for mushrooms, you'll seek out, if it's a dry season, you'll seek out areas that are a little bit more moist. Maybe go to the ocean where you get that onshore flow. Temperature is important. And I'll, I'll discuss that a little bit more later. Available nutrients and also environmental impacts. You may go in and where it's normally that time for chanterelles and they logged it. And unfortunately, when they log it, they have just taken out the host organism. And so the chanterelle that needs that host organism will not be fruiting there, not for another 20 to 30 years. And then there's possibly things we don't know about. So spring season, this is a typical view of what it looks like in the spring when you're getting out there and you're looking for morels and porcini. You're looking at the end of April to May or mid-June. Um, the early fruitings will come in April and then May is about morel season and then late May, oh, mid-May really to mid-June, you're gonna see the spring porcini. So these are the first to fruit in the spring. Now on the left here is Gyrometra esculenta. This can be deadly. It has a rocket fuel precursor in it that is heat sensitive, but we worry that when people do boil it, it does not remove all of it. It's a carcinogenic compound, methyl, monomethyl hydrazine. Really bad for you. You do not want to eat that mushroom. There are some cultures that eat it. They parboil it several times and throw it off, and they say it's safe, but uh, we don't recommend that you eat that. On the right, it's something that looks very similar, but this one, this gyrometer, it's the same genus, the snowbank mushroom, comes out right after the snow melts, is generally considered safe. In this area, it has not been found to have any toxins. So next are the verpas that come up. They, a lot of people call these false morels. Um, Verpa conica on the left, I've actually borrowed a photo in the free Creative Commons from Ron Festerino. And that is Verpa conica. And then on the right is a Verpa bohemica. Both of those come up in the early spring. Now, one of the ways to tell these apart from morels is that the cap will sit on that stem or stipe like a thimble on a stick. At the bottom, it will be it will not be attached to the stipe itself, the stem. It hangs loose on there. Now, verpas are sold in a lot of the farmer's market, but what they don't tell you when they're selling them is that they have a um, compound in them that causes problems for some people. You have to cook these thoroughly. And even with cooking them thoroughly, some people will react unfavorably to these. They can cause a neuromuscular um, discoordination uh, in some people. It's pretty rare, but it can happen. They should really come with a warning label. So these are all saprobes living on dying or dead matter from the previous fall. And you'll find these on the edge of riverbanks and under cottonwoods and hardwood trees in the early spring. Some people prefer these to morels, but I don't know why they do. <laughs> now here's morels versus what they call false morels or the verpas. Now you can see on the left here, the morel that's sliced in half is hollow inside. It's attached at the base of the cap to that stem. 
on the verpa, it hangs loose at that area. It's just, it's actually not attached there. It's just hanging loose there. And on the inside of the stammer stipe is a cottony material. And that's how you can tell them apart. And the morels taste much better than the verpas. Most people think that. And then there's always got to be an exception to the rule. And so here is a mushroom that is hollow on the inside, but it's free at the base of the cap. So you would think, okay, now what is it? It is actually a true morel because it does not have that pithy interior. This one's pretty rare and they used to call it semi-libra, half free, but they changed the name to popularphilia because it liked poplars. <laughs> so indicators that the spring season is near. You see your lady slippers, this is for morels. You see your lady slippers are fruiting and your trilliums coming out. And also when the lilacs bloom in Seattle, a very good friend of mine who has lost mushroom hunting in 2013 and never found, used to say when the lilacs are fruiting, beginning to bloom, I should say bloom in Seattle, that's when you go looking for morels. And she was really an adept mushroom hunter. So here are your morels. Some of them, these are the black morels, a couple of them. You can see it's hollow on the inside. And black morels like to come up in burn areas. So they will have a big fruiting that first year. There will be smaller fruiting second and third year, but predominantly it's that first year after a burn. And so because we had a lot of forest fires, there will be a lot of morels fruiting. Species, between the species is not always morphologically distinct. In other words, they may look like they're belonging to a certain class of or certain genus and species, but they actually may be a different genus and species. Morels are really tough sometimes to tell apart. These are the Morcella esculenta clade, and this one is actually called Morcella americana. And I actually found these on the edge of the river bank under cottonwoods in the spring, and they were quite large. You can see my sewing scissors there and they get quite large and they're very, very tasty. They're actually better than the black morel. I like them a lot more, but they're not as common. So in the, when you do find them, you find them in pretty good quantity. They prefer hotter temperatures. They're one of the last morels to fruit. And they fruit, they like to fruit under apple trees. Now you have to be careful hunting under apple trees because up until like the seventies or so, they used that uh, lead arsenate as a, as a pesticide. And so that can be absorbed by the morels. Morels are very adept at absorbing lead and arsenic, which is really not a good thing. So I, I always try to hunt them in areas apart from apple trees. There have actually been poisonings back east where people have hunted them um, religiously under apple trees and uh, eaten too many of them. They're fruiting later in the spring into early summer. This is a really good mushroom, has a very good taste, it's a meaty type of the taste, is the spring king bolete, Boletus rex veris. Comes up under mountain conifers, and it's a very, uh, generally a very large mushroom when you find it. And you wanna find it earlier in its development because these are a little tricky to preserve. If you don't process them the first night you come home or possibly the second, by the time you do look at them again and cut them open, they'll have a lot of little maggots in them. They attract the beetles and the flies, lay their eggs in them, and then by the time they're warming up, they develop pretty quickly in there. So you want to make sure if you are hunting these that you keep them very cold after you've picked them 
and get them home and process them within a day or two. So summer fruitings are pretty limited. Around here, we don't have much that goes on. Early summer, and even in the spring, you can get the oyster mushroom. And on the left here is one that I found in nature. And they can be pretty large in their fruitings. It's really nice when you do find them. You get quite enough for a meal. Or you can grow them like I did on the right um, in the summer on coffee grounds from Starbucks. <laughs> I collected them for quite a long time and made a bed that was about 10 foot by three feet wide. And it was about a foot and a foot and a half deep. I collected them over a month. And of course, coffee grounds are sterile. They process them with the steamer. And so I bought some inoculum and planted it and we had quite a number of them. The only problem was that they did incorporate, incorporate the coffee into the cap. So I didn't quite figure out how to get to cultivate them without that. And then here's another summer fruiting mushroom, the Prince. This was actually in my front yard on the left-hand side. They have a toasted uh, mushroom, or sorry, toasted marshmallow color. And they have a beautiful almond smell. And they impart that to the food that you cook them in has a slightly more sweet taste than the store-bought mushroom. It is a close relative. They're both in the same genus, agaricus, and they are quite large, as you can see on the bottom with the colander I have. And on the right is the look-alike for the prince. A lot of mushrooms have a look-alike that's not good to eat. Well, this one is not good to eat. It's a gray mushroom. It doesn't look like the prince where it's golden brown. You'll see it has grayer tones. And it also has a smell like creosote. Now, if it's really cold, you won't get that smell. So what you need to do is scratch the, the stipe at the base of the stipe and then smell it. And if you're not sure what it is, and of course that will tell you that it doesn't have the almond smell. Both of these will come up under dug fir or pine. And the one on the right, the agaricus deardorfensis will also like to come up under sequoia. All season, the end of September to the end of October or early November. Uh, all season goes until you have a couple hard frosts. Now this particular mushroom is the uh, Ammonita muscaria variety Flavia vulvata, they call it, and it's called the fly agaric. And it is considered to be non-edible to just cook it, but there are people that do parboil it like three or four times, throw off the water and do eat it. They say it's quite good, but I am not gonna try it. It does give people hallucinations if you just cook it and eat it. It also makes you very sick. Now we generally start people out with the chanterelle group. These are the mushrooms that have folds under the cap. They do not have true gills. The lookalike on the right here has true gills. It's very sharp bladed, like knife blade gills. And then you can see where on the left, the chanterelle forks up at the top, and it also is rounded on the edges. That's how you can tell them apart. Also, the folds end unevenly on the stipe, whereas on the false chanterelle to the right, the hygrophoropsis, they end all in a pretty, pretty straight line there. Oops, oops, sorry. And these are not considered good to eat. They can make a lot, give people a lot of uh, gastrointestinal upset. Now the white chanterelles are another chanterelle in our area. And I actually prefer those in a lot of cases, particularly if it's raining a lot, because they tend to maintain a firmer texture. 
and don't absorb as much water. So it's nicer for cooking if it's raining. You can find all of our chanterelles in mixed conifer forests. And um, we don't have any hardwood chanterelles out here, although they do back east. But unfortunately, the fall chanterelle grows in those same areas. So you just have to learn to recognize them, learn to notice the features. Now here is a chanterelle on the left that is pretty particular. Uh, the rainbow chanterelle, Cantharellus roseocanus, grows only with spruce or lodgepole pine. It won't grow with other conifers. And so if you wanted to find this, you're going to have to learn your trees. So that's one good thing to note here is that really you should take some time, get a book on trees, and learn to recognize certain trees. You'll become a more successful forager that way. On the right is pig's ears, uh, Gompus clavatus. That's also mixed conifer forest. They sometimes will come up under hardwood, I've heard, but I've never seen that. Generally, when you find these, they're full of worms. So I have found them once where they weren't, but I really don't care for them much. I find them to have a slightly bitter taste, whereas the regular chanterelles have a very nice taste, nice mushroomy taste. But there are a lot of people that do like them. And this is considered the woolly chanterelle. There's another one that is, uh, this is Turbanellus flaccosus. There's another one that's brownish called Turbanellus kaufmannii. Um, they actually sell these in Mexico in the markets, but it makes a lot of people sick. So we don't really recommend it. It's pretty much up to the person whether they want to try it. You should cook it thoroughly if you do, but I, I really don't think it's worth it. Rumor has it, it doesn't taste that great anyway. But I just wanted you to recognize the differences with the regular chanterelles. You'll notice on the inside of the cap, it's kind of shaggy. So that's why it's called the woolly chanterelle. And the veins are a lot more pronounced. They're a lot thicker. They're also very large, like, like 12 inches high when they are mature. Now here's another one that's in the fall that's one of my favorites. Top three, <laughs> King Bolit, Porcini, Boletus sedulus. The Boletus group, you can see by this lower photo on the left, are tubes that are compressed. They look like a sponge underneath, but they're really long tubes and the spores are born on the inside of those. And you can see they get quite large. That's my son Colin up there holding one that he found. And Boletus sedulus associates with conifers, but there are also different subspecies that associate with oak or hornbeam or other, other trees, birch too. They're very meaty taste on these and very substantial. Again, Boletus, you have to be careful of those maggots and process them right away. Now you'll see with this relative of the Boletus sedulus, this is Boletus barosii, there's a reticulation or a veining underneath the cap on the stem. And this is indicative, oops, I'm sorry, indicative of a true uh, Boletus. Other members of the general Bolete family are the Lexinums, which are different. They have a sponge under the cap, but you'll notice they have these dark scabers on the stalks. Now, some of those will bruise blue, like the ones out under Manzanita on the coast, and they can get quite large and the caps will be redder, but many people do not, are not able to tolerate the ones that blue, bruise blue. I have no problem with those. I love Lexinums. They will turn very dark when you cook them and they have a very uh, earthy um, taste, uh, earthy mushroomy taste. And I find them to be very good. 
And you can see on the lower right here, that's how they look in nature when they're growing under the birch tree. This is the birch bully. Now, when I was talking about bruising, I put this photo in on the left here on the bottom. And here is some, you can see a slight pinkish around here. This is some of the bruising that we were talking about on some of the boletus and some of the mushrooms. And sometimes that bruising will be blue, sometimes it'll be pink or red, and sometimes just brown. And some mushrooms won't bruise at all. Then there's the slippery jacks. These also have a sponge under the cap, but the caps are sticky. So if you find a mushroom with a sponge and it's sticky, it's a slippery jack. It's not a true bolete and it's not a lexinum. And Suillus, which is what this genus is called, sometimes have dots on the stem, but they're not scavers. They're considered little dots, glandular dots. They're made by a resin that leaks out and hardens. And I know a lot of people really like these, but they're not one of my favorites. Um, some people can react to them with the sticky part on the top. So some, if you're gonna try them, you should probably peel that off. They're quite slimy. A lot of people pickle them and they're very, they make for very slimy pickles. Some of them are very particular. They grow under a certain pine tree. Other ones are not as particular. And like this one on the lower right, grows only under larch, the tamarack jack. All suillus, there are no suillus that will make you sick. I shouldn't say that. There are some people that get sick with them, but there are no suillus that will kill you. And then as far as bolletes, there really are only several bolletes that will harm you. This is one of them. They're very rare. Most people do not have to worry about these, finding these because they are not common. And in fact, now it's not even legal to pick them anymore. Uh, but this is Boletus rubro Boletus pulcarinus. It used to be called Boletus pulcarinus. And this can make you very, very ill. It bruises blue, has red sponge under the cap, red pores, and you wanna stay away from this one. Also grows in the mixed conifer forest, but it's quite rare. This one was found out by Mount Rainier. Puffballs, that's a lot of people's favorite. Um, your gem studded puffball in the upper left, beautiful. You wanna cut them in half, make sure you don't have a baby ammonita. Remember I said that the universal veil can cover the mushroom. It can make it look like a puffball. And so you cut them and make sure they're white inside. You'll get to recognize them without doing that. But when you first start out, cut them and make sure there's no tissue differentiation. And what they should look like inside is a pure white marshmallow. If you see something that looks like gills forming, do not eat that, that's a baby ammonita. Now they're usually very soft. However, the puffball on the right is a little more firm. This is Calpovista subsculpta. These get a lot bigger. And um, again, you wanna cut them and make sure that they are completely white inside, homogeneous interior. Now, if you find something that looks like a puffball, like on the bottom, and it's quite hard, like a tennis ball, and you cut it open and you have a heck of a time cutting it open, that's going to be an earth ball. And most of those are poisonous species. So you'll see that dark purple interior and it's very hard. Now, these aren't all bad, even though we can't eat them, they are still doing some good because they form that symbiotic relationship with the trees. And so actually they're helping the trees, even though they aren't good for us to eat. So chicken of the woods, this is a lot of people's favorite. Um, 
I can't eat it if it's growing on dug fir, but I can eat it if it grows on hemlock. Usually people pick the edges along, they trim off the edge of the cap because as you get further in where it attaches to the wood, this one does not have a stem. It only has a cap. Um, it gets really, really tough and it's really difficult to digest and difficult to cook. Now, you, when you do trim this off, you wanna cook it long and slow. And a lot of people say it tastes like chicken, but I think it doesn't taste like chicken. It just tastes like a mushroom, but um, it is a lot of people's favorite. The one on the upper right is Sparasis radicata. This is a friend that was in our mushroom society and she gave me permission to use this because it was just so huge. It's like a bunch of uh, wet noodles all pressed together. This is a, a very, very tasty mushroom. And, oh, I keep doing that, I'm sorry. And it keeps, um, it keeps for quite a, quite a while outside. And if you bring it home, you, um, sometimes have a hard time cleaning it. The dirt and things can get in there. It's a parasite. And if you find it, you should note where you find it because it's one of those parasites I refer to as a weak parasite where it can go on for maybe 20 years living at the base of that dug fir tree and just takes enough to sustain itself. And so the tree is able to live with that living on it. Now on the bottom is coral mushroom. Now some corals are good, some are bad. None will kill you but some will make you sick and you'll be on the porcelain throne all night. So corals are pretty tough to tell apart. Um, some of them you can only tell apart with microscope work and also chemical tests. Generally in the Pacific Northwest, we have a simpler test. We cut the stem longitudinally and we see whether um, it has a gelatinous material inside. And if it has that, it likely will make you a little sick. So you want to stay away from those. You want it to be pure white. So on the left here is the russula, short-stemmed russula. When that becomes parasitized, it's a very bland mushroom. Some people like to pickle it, but the one on the bottom is the same mushroom, but is parasitized by another mushroom called Hypomyces lactiflorum. And it changes the taste from bland to a slightly seafoody taste. And it's actually quite good. A lot of favorites, people's favorite. Delicious milky cap on the right is one of the ones that if you cut the gills, it bleeds either a orange milk like this one, and there's a close relative that bleeds red milk. So if you get orange or red milk in a milky cap, they're edible. All of them are edible in this area. But if you get white milk, do not eat it unless you get that identified. The milk will oxidize to a green or a blue-green color once it hits the air. Now here's the shaggy parasol mushrooms. These will grow up in your yard. Get them started. If you find them out in the, um, in the environment, you can bring them home and get them started around your compost pile. They're really easy, pretty easy to get started. They're a saprobe. They like to live on dead matter. And they also like to grow under cedar trees, which is kind of unusual. Most mushrooms do not like to grow under cedar trees. The one on the upper left is chlorophyllum bruneum, and on the lower right is chlorophyllum olivarii. The one on the right you'll find more in the woods. It's a darker one and the stem is longer. They both taste about the same to me and they both bruise a little bit pink. Now there is one in the rest of the country that looks a lot like this. It's another chlorophyllum. It's called chlorophyllum molybdites. I don't have a picture of it. 
but it has a slight green tint to the gills. Remember I said there was one mushroom that has a green spore print. Well, that's it. It looks like these, but it has a green spore print. And we never had it in this state until the last year or so. And I think because of warming, that's why we're getting it in Ellensburg now, Wenatchee, Ellensburg area. So it grows in grassy areas. It looks beautiful. It looks just like these, but it will make you very, very ill. So over here, you don't need to worry about it, but over there I would do a spore print and make sure you don't have the bad one. Now here's a fun one, easy to recognize. In Europe, they call these lawyer's wigs. That's pretty apparent why. They drip their ink, it, the inky caps, they turn into an ink, and these are called shaggy manes, and they are wonderful. The only problem is if you're out a couple hours drive from home, you have a warm car going home, by the time you get home, these are an inky mess. And so you want to be close to home if you pick these to where you can fry them up and they make an exceptional mushroom soup, very delicate flavor. And this I brought in, wood bluets are tough to identify. Wood bluets are one of my favorite, but the reason I threw this in here is to show you how much a mushroom can look alike. You see the wood bluet on the left and on the right is one of those that I told you we stay away from where it has the webbing and there's no webbing there, right? Well, that's because it disappears. All that's left is this tiny little strand to tell you that that webbing was there and this is actually one of the web caps. So you don't wanna eat this mushroom. But they can look very, very similar. Both of these will grow in pretty much the same areas. The one on the left, the wood blue, it actually smells like orange juice. The one on the right could smell fruity. A lot of the quaternaries smell fruity. So it might be a little confusing. But the difference here is that the one on the left will have a pink spore print, whereas the one on the right will have rusty brown. So it'll be really important if you're going to start to forage for mushrooms, some of the key things you have to pay attention to, observational skills and attention to detail. And this is the Pacific Northwest Matsutake, grows in mixed conifer forest. And this is, uh, three of these are okay to eat. One of them will do your kidneys uh, take your kidneys out. And I always show people this to show them how much that the lookalike can look like the Matsutake. The third from the left is Ammonita smithiana. And you can see by the swollen base, it has a vulva. It's not a typical vulva, so it might confuse some people. And the key feature here is going to be the cinnamony smell for the Matsutake. The Ammonita will not have a cinnamony smell. So if you're not sure, Get it ID'd by someone who would know. You don't want to end up like this. <laughs> and six important rules for trying new mushrooms. Be 100% sure of ID. When in doubt, throw it out. Always cook your mushrooms thoroughly. Uh, eat a small amount to begin with. Don't pig out on them the first time if you're trying a new mushroom and only try one new kind at a time or you won't know what you reacted to. And then only eat mushrooms that are in good condition. Some people um, don't eat slimy mushrooms. Helpful hint, even though you think you know what you're doing, if you're new at this, or if somebody was overconfident that you know that gave it to you, always save back some of the mushrooms that you're, that you're using, just in case. Where to hunt? State parks, national forests, DNR land, national parks. Private land with permission, or your own land. And then you can't hunt on Native American reservations without permission. City parks, a lot of people don't realize city parks, it's actually illegal to hunt there. Arboretums or public gardens. Um, some state parks do not allow picking. 
and some national parks do not allow picking. And any areas that are noted as preserves or reserves are probably going to be off limits. Now, do you need a permit? To get into the area, you will need one of these permits. If you're hunting in national forests, the one on the far left, if you're trying to hunt in a national park where they allow a limited amount of hunting, you will want the one in the center. Um, there are also day passes available. These are the yearly passes. And then if you're hunting in state lands, you will need to have a discover pass for the Washington State Park or Washington State Forest. And then you will also need harvesting permits, which are separate of these passes, which allow you access. And for harvesting permits, which are required in some areas, but not others, you have to call the forest office in the area that you're going to be hunting in. So here on our website, we have compiled the Washington rules for hunting in various areas. And you can see it's quite uh, laborious, it's quite detailed. So you can go to our website and click on harvesting mushrooms up at the top and way at the bottom of the page after we talk about harvesting and what to do, there is a link to this page and it will help you. But you should always call ahead because there can be temporary closures. So what do you need to stay safe? Well, as anything, dress appropriately, extra set of clothes, water, snacks, camera, all these things, personal care items, carry a small emergency kit. I like a walking stick. Uh, compass, you really should learn to use a compass. I'm bad, I haven't. And then mosquito repellent. Remember your basket and knife. And then remember that conditions can be very different going back and forth across the passes or wherever you're going. And you can preserve your harvest by drying, uh, saute and freezing, canning, pickling, making flavored salts. And then always remember if you're drying and sauteing, make sure that, that they're the same thickness. And may your eco experiences include the knowledge and wonders of Brazil. This is my contact uh, information. And I have a recommended book list if you would like to write me um, it was too small, the printing was too small, really. And you can write me, Marion Maxwell at hotmail.com, and I will send you that recommended book list. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. That was so great. That was really good. I tried to pack it all in. Sorry oh. about that. I know there was a lot to cover. Yeah, we, we. I did. I did want to add one thing, Ted. Um, I forgot to mention that in the spring, the spring season, the mushrooms are induced to fruit by warming temperatures okay. and fall it's by cooling temperatures and so in the spring it warms up first at lower elevations so you start out low and you go up high whereas in the fall they're induced by cooling temperatures so you start out higher and you come down lower ah that's good good tactics yeah one of my um one of my first questions for you which is I, I am an aspiring forager and you know I've written a few uh, articles on foraging and things like that but I think for a lot of people the barrier to entry for foraging for fungi and mushrooms can feel intimidating because of you know the various toxic mushroom poisonous mushrooms and things like that so what would you tell people who are interested in foraging but nervous about the risks like what's well, one thing one thing to remember is if I learned it, you can. It may take a while, but right. I, I would say that people who do not have good observational skills mm -hmm. probably should not hunt mushrooms. 
but they can always buy them. But um, the other thing is you start out very carefully. We start people out on chanterelles and bullied and there's nothing, you know, the one red poured bullied, but I mean, that's pretty evident. You, nobody would miss that. And yeah. there's, chan there's nothing that looks like a chanterelle that will kill you. And mm -hmm. then it's even questionable as to whether the red bullied would kill you, would just maybe right. make you really sick, but you, nobody's gonna make that mistake. Okay. So, yeah, so I would start out with the chanterelles and the bullied family start out with things that have like a high degree of uh, of success and low and low penalty low penalty for failure right <laughs> that's great now there are idiosyncratic idiosyncratic reactions where even though something is edible for most people it's always you can't say it's edible for 100% mm -hmm. and there's always somebody that's going to react to a given mushroom so for um, mushrooms that's why you try a little at a time okay when a new mushroom because you don't know if you're gonna be one of those people. And there's also cultures that will tell you, well, we've eaten this for a long time and it's okay, but we know now that that's not really a good mushroom to eat. So you always have to be careful who you learn from. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things is to get out and learn from people who are familiar with mushrooms in the area in which you're going to hunt. Okay. You don't wanna learn about West Coast mushrooms from an East Coast person and vice versa. Sure. And and you want to learn from someone who is knowledgeable about what's going on today and what we found out about certain mushrooms. So maybe something used to be recommended, but we have since then found out there are toxins in that mushroom and we don't recommend it any longer. Okay. Here's a little bit of like a sort of a tactical question. Are, you know, if you, obviously we're not supposed to, for people who are new to this, you're not supposed to pick flowers and things like that, like for, like that damages certain things. So, but some of the techniques like bruising and, and uh, spore prints, things like that, does that, let's say you're wrong, does that somehow like harm the mushroom or, or, or since that's the fruiting body, it doesn't do anything to it? Well, how much, how much leave no trace are you trying to, should you? Well, should we you? always recommend, we, a lot of people advocate having open bottom boxes so you don't hunt with plastic bags and things you you hunt with uh, baskets that allow the spores to drop through mm -hmm. family always takes a little slice of the cap and throws it back down oh okay and and we always leave some okay i'd always leave some so in that way there's like you're able there you're able to keep propagating but you don't have to worry about you know manhandling them out of existence Correct. or something. Now they've done studies and they say that it doesn't matter whether you pull or whether you cut. But there are like for example on the chanterelles it 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 does keep your basket cleaner if you cut them. Mm -hmm. you pull them it does make a difference in the way that they say it doesn't really harm the mushroom but it does cut down on subsequent flushes because at the base of that little chanterelle, there will be baby primordia. So if you pull it out, you pull out those primordia. Whereas if you cut it and you're careful, those can stay there. And then in a couple of weeks, there'll be a new flush. Okay. Yeah, but it doesn't really harm the body of the mushroom to do that. Okay. Do you, I'm gonna, go, oh, go ahead. Oh, 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 but anyway, I was just gonna say, so it's important because you want to leave something for sexual reproduction because mushrooms need to reproduce sexually. That that produces mushrooms needs that that those spores to go out into the environment and to reproduce sexually. They can't live indefinitely without that sexual reproduction. Eventually, that hyphae will die off. Do do you in all of your years do you have a, doing this? Do you have a 
favorite Northwest mushroom? And and it can be kind of a two-parter. Like one can be to eat and then another can be like this, this particular species just fascinates me because of, uh, you know, a particular characteristic. I, I have three at the top of my favorite list. Okay. The one is Matsutake. I can't decide between them. So I always tell people I have three favorites for edibility and that's the Matsutake and the Prince mushroom that smells like almonds, mm-hmm. the King Bolete. Those are my three favorites. Chanterelles is a little bit down from those for me. Yeah. And then for, for looks, I'm always happy when I find a beautiful mushroom, like a, a beautiful violet mushroom, or uh, for example, Cortinarius violaceus is a beautiful dark purple. It's technically edible, but um, it's one of the web caps. So we tell people when they're starting, stay away from it, but it's incredibly beautiful. And it smells like cedar. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really neat. That's cool. So, so we're right in the middle of fall. We're right in the middle of, you know, potential, although there's snow coming very quickly. So I, I don't know how much is left of the season, but what's, what is, what's blowing up right now? Well, we actually went out last week and we found chanterelles. We found bear's head fungus, like the first photograph of my, the big white one that was, mm-hmm. that had like teeth hanging down. Yeah. And um, we also found Boleta sedulus and we found milky caps. And then we also eat some mushrooms that probably beginners wouldn't be eating right away. And it's, it's nice if you do take identification because it's getting pretty competitive out there. And so if you do take some ID scales, you can find things that other people don't recognize. And so you pick them and then you still have mushrooms to eat. And so there's, there's quite a few things out there right now. That's great. Yeah. So this is like a little, I would imagine like mushroom hunters and foragers like would guard your favorite places, like, like, a, like a very important secret. For Top secret. <laughs> yeah. But for people who are generally interested in getting into this, like what is a good, what is a, what's a place and it can be as wide or general. What's, what's a good place to start? Well, I would recommend that they start with joining a group. It doesn't have to be our group, the Puget Sound Mycological Society, but I would recommend that they start with a group because if they're not familiar with the woods or um, we do have guides and also we identify at each of the field trips. Now, right now we can't do our field trips because of COVID, but when we do have the field trips, we go out and they're very well managed and we identify people's finds. And then we tell, if you bring back a mushroom, you say, hey, I think this is a chanterelle and maybe it wasn't. And then tell you why it wasn't a chanterelle and you learn from that. And we call that field experience. And that's probably more important than even having a good guidebook. And so I would recommend that they just start out joining a a group. But for this year, when you're going out on your own, national forests are are good to start out in national forests. can't hunt as much in national parks. Uh, some of them don't allow it at all, like the North Cascades one, no picking. Mm. But Rainier allows a tiny bit during a mushroom season. Okay. Yeah. That's great to know. So this has been uh, a pretty, pretty crazy for, like fire, wildfire year. And um, I'm, I'm curious about the relationship between wildfires and, and mushrooms. It seems like that there's a there's a relationship, I guess, between when when wildfires happen and, and then and then mushrooms might come after that. What can you tell us right. more about that right. relationship? Well, you'll get the morels. The morels will come after a fire, 
But unfortunately, all those beautiful chanterelles and bear's head and Boleta sedulis and all the mushrooms that had that symbiotic relationship are now destroyed and they won't be back for 25 to 30 years. Wow. And so once the morels are done, then you'll have the wood decayers moving in, which some of those are edible, mm -hmm. like mushroom. Mm -hmm. uh, but by and large, the diversity of fungi, as far as the choice edibles, mm -hmm. the morels are done, is severely depleted. That's okay. Yeah. This is kind of re rewinding to um, back to back to kind of the, the poison, the poisonous mushrooms. Is there is there an evolutionary purpose for that toxicity, or is it just sort of a side effect of the of the makeup of you the mushroom? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that they, it is rumored that squirrels can eat the death cap with no problems. Wow. And so possibly. Um, so there's another thing to look at is don't assume that if one animal can eat something that you as another mammal can eat the same thing. Uh, yes. So it could be that it's just to secure a food source for certain groups of animals. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Or that they spread their spores without nobody bothering them, without anybody <laughs> bothering them. <laughs> They're more successful that way, I guess. Leave them unmolested. Death is actually spreading in our area, and it, that, it was there before the seventies, and it's it's becoming quite prevalent. So that's interesting. Yeah, I want to know a little bit more about that. Like how so new species can come in and be more be introduced almost as a as an invasive species would be. That's mm -hmm. that's kind of how it proliferates. Right. You bring in a tree from a different area, like mm -hmm. you. Import, they import trees that are grown in California on oaks, and then you bring them up here and plant them in your garden. Mm -hmm. um, that could very easily bring in the death cap. And it's a bad mushroom as far as our eating it, but in truth, it's actually helping the tree. Interesting. Those are po positive for the ecosystem, but not necessarily for foragers. Mm -hmm. And also the warming temperatures. Mm. Temperatures okay. maybe are influencing things. Like for the one that I said that had the green spore print, the mm -hmm. Chlorophyllomolidites, that one has always been in predominantly warmer areas, areas that have hotter summers or down in the south or even in Hawaii. And um, we didn't see it until last year here. And so I think it's because things are warming a bit. Interesting. So to, to kind of go a little bit, a little bit uh, personal, so I think that fungi and especially mushrooms, they, they occupy this like mysterious place in the kingdom taxonomy, you know, like not, not quite plant, not quite, they, they're kind of, uh, yeah, they're constantly mysterious. So for you, when did they first capture your attention? What, how did it, what was it about them that just like really excited you? I just, I was at the U and my fiance, who's now my husband had taken the general mycology class from Dr. Stunts mm -hmm. and I had an opening in my schedule and I had to fill it. And I wasn't quite sure what my major was going to be at that point, but um, I looked and saw that the general mycology class was open and I thought, well, I'll sign up. And then we got into the class and it was a large class that kind of sloped down. And it was like five minutes after the class was supposed to start and the teacher, the instructor wasn't there. And then all of a sudden this portly man walks down from the back mm -hmm. and doesn't turn around. He just starts writing on the board and <sighs> Dr. Stunts, and what he wrote was something from a book that was written in England in 1526. Wow. And I still remember it. It was Mushrooms Ben Fungi, 
There be two manners of them. One manner be deedly and sleeth him that eateth of it. The other doth not. They that be not deedly be gross, glimy, <laughs> disobedient to nature and digestion, be perilous and dreadful to eat, and therefore it is better to eschew them. <laughs> this whole book on plants, because they considered them part of the plant kingdom, and there's this one paragraph about, okay, there's the ones that'll kill you and the ones that you stay away from, and that's it. That's it. Not, no use, no use otherwise. <laughs> it was interesting. That's fascinating. I just thought, ooh, I thought this is really a strange professor. And then from then on, I was hooked. I took every undergraduate course they offered. That's amazing. That's such a great story. He was a wonderful man. He used to put out lab practicals for us. And on the Fridays, he would, he almost starved when he was a student. And so he would have this area where we were doing our labs and it would be laden with sliced meats and cheeses and donuts and uh, breads and mayonnaise to put on your sandwich and cakes. It was just, and he did that every Friday for us so that nobody would go hungry. <laughs> That's so great. Paid for that out of his pocket. That's so great. He was an amazing, you would have loved him. He was an amazing man. Oh man, that does sound like incredible, like just an yeah. incredible experience. Yeah, I was really lucky to be, be able to learn from him. I'm going to, I will, I'll ask, I'll go on a personal question. I'm always interested in the forest when I see the, the shelf fungi that are kind of growing on the larger, you know, old growth trees. What are, what are, what are those? Like what are, how, how do those relate to mushrooms, I suppose? Well, they're parasites. Okay. They're actually, parasites. They're actually killing the tree, most of them. Um, and they, many of them we have been finding have medicinal properties. Interesting. Of compounds that are being researched as anti-cancer, wow, antiviral, or antibacterial. And these are the com the common ones that we would see up here. What, yeah. What yeah, wow, yeah, the artist conch. Um, there's one that's called uh, Agaricon, Phomatopsis mm -hmm. officinalis, and uh, there's a close relative Phomatopsis. Uh, it was Pinnacola, but now there's a new name for it. That's one of the problems right now with a lot of the research the uh, reference books. They're doing a lot of DNA sequencing and we're finding out things that we thought were related because they look similar mm -hmm. are not actually related. And so there's a lot of name changing going on now. It's still the same mushroom. It's still the same edibility, but it may be put in a different group now and the name may be changed. And there's uh, one, the Matsutake, I think the name's changed four or five times since I started learning about mushrooms. Wow. And they put them into completely different genera. They're not even in the same group anymore. Wow, that's fascinating. So it gets confusing because there are these poor people going out to learn about mushrooms and they find out that all these reference books out there are obsolete. <laughs> it's changing all the time. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so crazy. It's a little bit frustrating. So that's why in a lot of cases, um, common names are a little confusing sometimes that it can be the same common name for maybe two or three different mushrooms, but mm. by and large, the common names have stuck around and been true, whereas the scientific names have changed a lot. Wow, that's totally altered. That's amazing that there's so much movement within that type, that area of study. That's, that's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, I wanna make sure and get to uh, our reader questions or our viewer questions, because we have a few coming in right now. So um, Holly Revert asks, is there a certain orientation that is best for chanterelles, like east-west facing hillsides? 
Well, for Matsutake East, but not not I haven't noticed that with chanterelles. Okay. No. Why what why is it that east facing hillsides are great for uh, Matsutake's? Not sure. It just seems to pan out. Yeah, we're not sure. Maybe maybe it's a cooler because mm -hmm. you don't have the sun setting on its side and it's cooler temperatures. Usually mm -hmm. the west facing slopes are a little warmer at the end of the day. Yeah. So I would guess it would be because it's cooler temps. That's great. Um, Kevin Canfield asks, if we want to start picking now, how can we get help with identification while we're dealing with COVID? You can send it, Send they have to be good pictures and you can't cut the mushroom off at the base if you want it to be identified. There are sometimes structures at the base that we need to see. And so when you have a mushroom you want to be identified, you wanna take a clear picture of the cap under the cap, the stipe, and all the way at the bottom of the stipe, and then note possibly what kind of tree you found it under. And if you don't know what kind of tree it is, maybe include a leaf or a piece of the pine branch mm -hmm. to show us what kind of tree that you think it was under. And that would help us tremendously. Great. Um, we have another question coming in. Um, where can we get in, and this is topical since I believe this is on ballots, on a ballot initiative in certain places. Where can we get information about psilocybin mushrooms for medicinal purposes? <laughs> I knew this would come. Shroomery.org. <laughs> Shroomery.org. But you have to remember that right now it's still a felony to possess those. Mm -hmm. So our group can't endorse that. We're a 5013C. But still illegal, we can't endorse it, and we really we don't encourage it at our field trips or anything because it's we would lose our funding or our yeah. not funding but our five hundred one three c c three status. That makes sense. Yeah, it's dicey. There's the actually. Well, I was president. I got a call from two people. Um, one was someone who had been caught down uh, down near Iwako. The police down there are very, very vigilant about arresting people with those that they pick mm -hmm. the dunes and actually watch for people. And we had heard about uh, someone, you know, called us and said that he was looking at five years. Mm -hmm. And also um, a mother called and said that her son had been picked up and she wanted to know if I knew a lawyer in that area who could fight, fight that, which mm -hmm. I know be lawyers, but. Um, it's a really serious offense down there. You not only get charged with possession of a controlled substance, unfortunately, but they also get you with stealing from the state park. <laughs> uh, a risky proposition in all, on all levels. Basically. It's ridiculous, you know, because this right now at John Hopkins University back east, they're looking at this as a treatment, psilocybin as a treatment for uh, bipolar disease as well as um, addiction. Right. And then also for um, end of life anxiety, mm -hmm. and particularly in people who have terminal cancer. Right, right. There's the and it, it's really promising. It's right. promise. There was it's the really sad that we can't kind of open our minds a little bit and kind of explore things a little more without the taboos. Yeah. Um, can you take us through a little bit more of uh, some of the benefits of being part of the Puget Sound Mycological Society? Well, one thing that's really nice, they have the best potlucks I've ever had. It's like <laughs> most amazing food. We have a wide diversity of um, members that 
people from all over. And so you'll have people bringing dishes to these potlucks that are, you know, culturally Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Russian, Middle European, Mexican, um, South American. Oh my gosh. And so, and people go all out. These are like these huge spreads and they're incredible. We have wonderful potlucks, but that's aside from the mushroom honey. <laughs> that's just a bonus. But it's a really, generally they tend to be very um, tolerant and very nice people. And I really like that group of people. They won't tell you their favorite mushroom spots. Don't think of because they won't. <laughs> is, that a faux, is, that the, is that a faux pas in the community? Like just yep. don't ask it. Just don't ask don't it. Ask. Learn, learn, because that's what's so fascinating to me about it is that it's so like biologically interdisciplinary. Like it's not just understanding mushrooms, it's understanding trees and understanding so many different um, different things about the biome to, to like become a well-rounded mushroom hunter. That's, that's, that's what makes it. It is. Great. Yeah. It's, it's all encompassing and the uh, it's just a really fun hobby, but you have to understand with the field trips, we do take you to areas that those mushrooms that you want to pick are there. Mm -hmm. Teach you the habitat, and then you go out with guides and you find spots with, mm -hmm. you know. And we teach you to areas where they're likely to fruit. They're not always fruiting there, and we always say that's why it's called mushroom hunting, not mushroom picking, because mm -hmm. because of weather conditions and all kinds of things. There, there's one season that I went over the mountains. What was it? Six times in my van, which is probably eighty dollars worth of gas where I was going, and we found after six times, three bull eats, that was it. It was a dry season yeah. and that's all we found. And so you figure out the price of mushrooms there, it probably wasn't worth it, but you got to look at it. You know, you're out hiking, you're in the forest. Mm -hmm. uh, I think as the Japanese culture has a, a word for it and I don't know what it is, but it's bathing in the forest. Yeah. It lowers your blood pressure and it's therapeutic. And, and so it's not always a cost thing, but if you did have to put a cost on the mushrooms it probably would be pretty high. <laughs> do it do it for the uh for the the fringe benefits and we get an additional meal not necessarily uh not necessarily saving money <laughs> and camaraderie with our you know we go out alone a lot too but it's fun to go out with the group it's mm -hmm. a lot of fun and it's fun to see people it's kind of like when you have kids and they see that first snowfall mm -hmm. and, and it becomes wondrous again for you yeah. and it's that with people who are hunting mushrooms that you'll see somebody who discovers their first chanterelle and they're just so over the moon that you remember what it was like when you found your first chanterelle mm -hmm. and you were excited and, and you relive that again. It's really nice. You get to share in that. That's great. Yeah. We have, we have a question coming in. We're wondering if you could talk a bit about mushroom coffee, which seems to be like a, a trend these days. I know certain podcasts that I've listened to have been, uh, yeah, they'll tout the benefits of mushroom coffee. I think like chaga mushrooms are maybe the, the main mushroom in it. But I'm curious, yeah, what, what if you... Know. I've actually had those. I, a little coffee shop in Renton, Liberty Cafe, is serving the chaga, chaga cappuccino, or chaga chino, I think it's called. And they're actually really good. Chaga has a, uh, a healthful benefit. It's considered uh, to be helpful in fighting cancer by many people who are studying it. Uh, mm -hmm. the community hasn't embraced that so far but um, a lot of those things are being looked at by colleges such as Bastyr up north mm -hmm. 
and there seems to be a lot of credible research going on, particularly in other areas where they don't have that mushroom phobia that we do, mm -hmm. and they're researching that. But chaga is supposed to be very good for you. Excellent. It's actually quite tasty. It's really good in coffee. Awesome. I'm excited to try it. I have a friend who swears by it. I have yet to, I have yet to try it. But I've yeah, I love it. it. I just tried it last week for the first time. Finally bit the bullet. I had <laughs> chaga tea, but that wasn't quite as good as the chaga chino. <laughs> chaga chino. Yeah. Uh, we have one more question coming in. Uh, I have foot high mushrooms on my driveway that have black slimy rotting cap. What's the evolutionary benefit of the rot or the slime? Uh, it could be, I'm not sure if those are coprinus comatus, the shaggy manes, mm -hmm. but dripping ink, they drip that ink so that they spread their spores. Mm. Um, there's also, there's a whole science also involved about, um, you know, the insects and the relationship of insects to fungi. Okay. Don't get maggoty very often. Um, until you really have them a long time, but like the boletus, it's like almost overnight, but there's just, um, there's insects that will occupy them. There's some that will only lay their eggs in, in mushrooms that are fresh. Mm -hmm. There's insects that will only lay them midstream, and there's some that will only lay their eggs in rotting mushrooms. It's really interesting. It's a whole environmental study. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's really quite interesting. What's the next, what's your, do you have a, I'm curious if you have like, what's, what's the next frontier for you with like mushrooms? Do you have some project that you're pursuing or some type of mushroom you'd like to find? Or like, what's the, what's the, what's the white whale, I guess you could say. For Actually you. for me, oh my gosh, I've started looking up endophytic fungi. Um, endophytic fungi are fungi that live their entire life cycle within a plant. Oh, wow. They spread by either they're in the seeds of the plant when it drops and then they're already in the seed for the next plant or the branch falls off and roots and they're already in that branch. And I've been reading up on them and they're fascinating. Like for example, Taxol for uh, treatment of breast cancer in women, mm -hmm. uh, that Taxol in the yew tree is not made by the yew tree. Oh wow. By an endophytic fungus that lives in that yew tree. And then different endophytic fungi produce compounds. For example, um, in certain types of grasses, if the grass starts getting eaten by bugs, some kind of uh, predator that's a bug, the fungus somehow senses that and it makes a compound that makes it unpalatable to those bugs. Wow. It saves the grass from being eaten by the bugs. That's amazing. There's the black walnut tree has a fungus that's endophytic in it that allows it to drip a compound underneath the tree that inhibits growth of other trees in the area so that they don't grow up and take the sunlight from that black walnut. Wow, that's amazing. And it's just, so for me, I wanna study those more. I'm fascinated by them. That's great, that's fantastic. Well. I think we're we're kind of nearing the end of our of our talk, but this was spectacular. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and taking us through this. And I encourage everyone to uh, look up the Puget Sound Mycological Society, see see what programs they have going, how you can participate, and uh, yeah, and and then maybe hopefully soon we'll all be we'll all be out there foraging together soon. Well, thank you again for inviting me here tonight and um, I hope I was able to instill a greater appreciation of mushrooms for 
for everybody or fungi that produce mushrooms. And then I also wanted to thank again, Robert Berman from the Centrum Foundation and CrossCut KCTS and UTED. Thank you for hosting. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody. And come join us sometime. I would love to. I would, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to get over the fear. I'm, I'm, it's time. <laughs> Our general meetings are open to the public when we start meeting again in person. And then even though we're not meeting in person, our general meetings are posted on our website now at www.psms.org. Okay. And you can just join the meeting for free at the Zoom, a Zoom meeting for free. And awesome. you can get a lecture for free. Excellent. PSMS.org. Everybody keep yep. an eye on it. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. This was spectacular. All right. Thanks for hosting. All right. Bye-bye. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of Communiversity is Robert Berman, Centrum's executive director. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation.